0: Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. It's another Q&A edition of Optimal Health Daily, episode 2060, and I'm Dr. Neil Malik. Hey there, happy Friday and welcome to another Q&A edition of Optimal Health Daily, where I answer your health questions related to fitness, diet and nutrition, and lots more. You send in the questions and I answer them for you. Now, once a month, usually during the first Q&A episode of the month, I mention a bit about my background and credentials so you can better understand where my perspectives come from. Given this is the first Q&A of the month already, it's time. Now, while I've always been obsessed with Batman and the Angels baseball team, I wasn't always interested in the things I talk about on this podcast. Nutrition, exercise, health, and wellness. But... Being diagnosed with a chronic disease at the age of 19 definitely changed my life's purpose. It was then I decided to focus my attention on helping others so that no one else had to experience a chronic disease diagnosis like I did. But in order to do that, I wanted to have some credibility. This is not meant to be a humble brag, but instead gain your trust. I received both my master's and doctoral degrees in public health. And to make sure I really covered all of my bases, get it. Bases, baseball. All right. I also became a registered dietitian nutritionist, a certified health education specialist, and a certified exercise physiologist through the American College of Sports Medicine. I've been teaching in higher education for over 14 years and I'm currently faculty within the California State University system. I've published peer reviewed studies, presented at national conferences, and have been interviewed by over 70 different media outlets for my expertise on. Basically, all the stuff I talk about on this podcast. So again, all of this was not meant to be a humble brag, but instead to say that when I provide my commentary after each episode and answer the questions you send in, I hope you feel as though it's coming from a place of truth. My only intention is to help you feel your best. And with that, let's finally get to today's question as we optimize your life. Today's question came via email. Alejandrina writes, Hi Dr. Neil, I've been a listener since 2018 and love your show. My question is about gluten intolerance. What's the best way to find out if you're gluten intolerant? Sometimes I eat pizzas, breads, and pastas and feel fine. And other times I eat those same foods and feel an immediate discomfort and a lot of bloating with pain. What do you recommend for someone hoping to find out if they're gluten intolerant? Thank you so much for taking the time to send in your question, longtime listener Alejandrina. I'll start with my usual disclaimer. Any recommendations I provide should always be discussed with your doctor. Because I am not a medical doctor, I can't and won't diagnose you because that's outside of my scope of practice and would therefore be unethical of me. What I can do is provide some guidance. It sounds like the most helpful thing right now may be for you to keep a food diary. I'll talk more about this a little later, but stick with me here. I'm going to start by saying that gastrointestinal issues in general are notoriously tricky to diagnose. That's because the underlying causes can range from bacterial or viral infections to, yeah, food allergy or intolerance to stress and even our exercise habits. All of these can contribute to the symptoms you're experiencing. And I know it feels like you're experiencing these symptoms specifically after you eat certain foods, but a food diary will really help to make sure that's actually happening. Again, stick around. I'll talk more about a food diary at the end. You could very well have a gluten intolerance. You could have a gluten allergy or possibly even celiac disease. I'm not trying to scare you, but again, the best way to know whether any of those are actually happening is to have a medical procedure done a procedure called an endoscopy. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is the first step. An endoscopy is usually something your doctor would want to perform after ruling out a bunch of other things, and possibly reviewing your food diary. But since we're on the topic of endoscopies, let me define what that is. The word endoscopy is a general term that basically refers to a doctor inserting a camera into the gastrointestinal tract. They can perform an upper endoscopy, where they look at what's referred to as the upper portion of the gastrointestinal tract, so the esophagus, stomach, and small intestine. They can also perform a lower endoscopy, which is more commonly known as a colonoscopy. That's where the camera looks at the large intestine and rectum specifically. It is recommended that basically everyone has a colonoscopy performed at least once around their 50th birthday but for those that have underlying gastrointestinal conditions or are experiencing discomfort like you, having one performed earlier in life may be recommended. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, besides keeping a food diary, besides having an endoscopy performed, isn't there a simpler way to tell if I'm intolerant to gluten? Well, they do have blood tests for this, but the blood tests for food intolerances aren't always accurate probably the most accurate measure to test food intolerances is to simply avoid those foods you're suspecting that are causing your symptoms and then do that for at least a month. Then you can slowly reintroduce those foods one by one back into your diet. So you would start by consuming a small amount of pizza, bread, pasta, one of those things. Then write down the date you ate or drank that food, the time, and then monitor yourself to see if any of those symptoms come back if the symptoms don't return after a couple of days, you can try consuming a slightly larger portion of that very same food. Not the other foods, but whatever one you started with. Again, keep detailed food logs and see if any of the symptoms return. If nothing happens again after a couple of days, that food is probably not the source of your intolerance. You would then repeat this process with another food item that you suspect causes you discomfort. You can also try something called the low FODMAP diet and that's something I would discuss with your doctor too. The low FODMAP diet is an eating plan created by researchers at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. They found that certain natural compounds in common foods can aggravate gastrointestinal discomfort in people sensitive to those compounds. Now, again, it could be gluten or it could be another sensitivity altogether. The word FODMAP is actually an acronym for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. These are just basically fancy names for specific carbohydrates. The diet in general encourages less consumption of foods that contain these specific fancy-sounding carbohydrates. What ends up happening is the body naturally ferments these carbohydrates when we consume them. As part of the fermentation process, waste gases are produced. But in those that are sensitive to these types of carbs, these waste gases can cause a great deal of discomfort. By limiting the consumption of these specific carbohydrates, less waste gases are produced. In fact, studies have shown that when a low FODMAP diet is followed, the odds of experiencing less stomach pain and bloating are 75% or higher. Now, I mention all of this because if you decide to keep a food journal and monitor your symptoms, you may want to consider monitoring how you respond to a low FODMAP diet. So, which foods should you avoid while following a low FODMAP diet? Because how do we know whether these fancy-sounding carbs are actually in our foods? It's going to be difficult to list every single food here, but Monash University's website has some fantastic resources. In the meantime, here are some common foods to avoid according to this eating plan. Avoid wheat, barley, and rye, garlic and onion, Certain fruits, like those with a large pit. These are also known as stone fruits. These include mangoes, peaches, nectarines, plums, and cherries. Apples and watermelon should also be avoided. Certain vegetables like asparagus, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, mushrooms, and snow peas, beans and lentils, and some sweeteners like agave and high fructose corn syrup. Now, I should mention that avoiding some of these foods is not a permanent thing. That's the good news. You just want to try limiting these foods for three to eight weeks. Then you would slowly reintroduce them back into your diet. And because many of these high FODMAP foods are important to consume as part of a nutritious and balanced diet, long-term avoidance of some of these foods can increase disease risk. So that's why you don't want to ignore them for the rest of your life. Discussing this eating plan with your doctor as well as keeping a food journal would be a good idea. Those would be my recommended first steps. And again, thank you so much for the question, Alejandrina, and thank you for being a longtime listener. Now, if you want your question answered right here on the show, send one in. And if you're in the U.S., we'll even send you a copy of our hardcover workbook if you send in a relevant question. You can email your question to health at oldpodcast.com. Or if you want to send in your audio question, just come by oldpodcast.com to record straight from your computer. Lastly, you can do it the old-fashioned way and call in your question. The number is country code one 61 love ohd That's 1-614-568-3643. All right, that's another Q&A edition of Optimal Health Daily. Thank you so much for listening every day. Thank you for listening all the way through. Thank you for sending in your questions. And I hope you have a great start to your weekend. And I'll see you back here tomorrow where your optimal life awaits.